This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio once again is Barbara Petson, founder and director of Middle East Connections. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Chris. It's and, great to be here. And this is part two of our episode on Ottoman history. In the first episode, we talk about who the Ottomans were, where they came from, and ended up by talking about life among the military elite corps, the Janissaries. And a follow-on question to that is, what was life like for a normal person in the Ottoman Empire? Life varied enormously depending on what you did for a living. So if you are a transhumescent nomad um, who's, you know, taking your sheep around the hills of Anatolia, that's one thing. And we know much less about their lives. But because most of our sources are sources about urban culture and lifestyle, we actually know an enormous amount about what life was like if you were, you know, a upper middle class merchant family in Constantinople, for example. So we know what you did with your leisure time. We know the kind of music you might have listened to. Um, we know a fair amount. And so what you might have done, for example, uh, on your off days um, is to go to the baths. There were many public baths in uh, Constantinople, as in other major cities in the empire. And it's very interesting because, of course, if you look at European depictions of the Ottoman bathhouses, um, they're usually filled with um, naked and semi-naked women. But in fact, this was something that both men and women enjoyed, um, not together, <laughs> right? So you had either bathhouses that were divided into the male half and the female half, and, and they were entirely separate, or you would have different hours for men to go and then for women to go. And so these were um, single-sex social spaces. Um, it wasn't just about getting clean. Um, it wasn't about, this is not where you would go, for example, to wash yourself before prayer. This was, you know, a spa experience, if you will. And what would often happen is that you would go and, oddly enough, I think especially for women, it's where you would show off your clothing before you took it all off or when you put it all back on. Right. It was about kind of conspicuous consumption and um, kind of cultural competition. So as much as it was about socializing, or perhaps socializing is always about those things, right? So it was about people showing off their sense of style and their sense of fashion, uh, very wealthy women who had young slaves that they were bringing up in the household would kind of get to show them off. So you, it was a space where you had have, you, it was really family space. You would have lots of children um, running around. You would have their own children and um, the children that they were raising as kind of adopted or slave children. You had uh, food. So they would take picnics and eat picnics at the bathhouse. Um, and they would, of course, conduct... Um, the kind of trading that women did uh, domestically, which was the kind of marriage market. So they would talk about those kinds of household alliances. They would engage in gossip, um, which is, of course, the exchange of information on the domestic sphere. We kind of degrade it by calling it gossip, uh, but it serves a very important social function. Men would, of course, also do their trading and make deals. You know, we have this kind of stereotypical image of, you know, the mafiosa men sitting in the steam room at the bathhouse. Well, 
if you put them all in, you know, kind of Ottoman gear or maybe out of Ottoman gear, um, that stereotype <laughs> would really hold true in the Ottoman Empire as well. So that was a social space. The other big social space, the other big story is coffee and oh, coffee of course, houses. Yes. You know, we, we have Starbucks on every corner now. Well, this is uh, uh, something that the Ottomans would have totally understood um, because... Although they would not recognize what is served as Starbucks as coffee. No, certainly not. Um, the latte macchiato half-calf steamer is not uh, an Ottoman invention. That is that is true. Um, but the Ottomans did have coffee. They were really the first... It was a, a pair of Ottoman brothers who brought coffee out of Arabia, um, where it had started gaining some currency after it was first begun to be drunk as a beverage uh, out of Ethiopia and or Yemen. You can argue about the provenance. Um, and, and they do. And they do. Um, but it comes to Istanbul in the early 16th century and very rapidly in pre-modern terms um, gets uh, taken by the trading community there to Venice, to Amsterdam, to London, etc., where we know the kind of social upheaval that it was part of, um, that it had exactly the same kind of effect in Istanbul. That is that Coffee doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't come in as a commodity that people take into their houses and drink in the privacy of their home. In fact, it becomes one of the first places outside of the bathhouse and the mosque where people can congregate and one of the only places they could do so legitimately in the evening. So suddenly you have social space that's open late into the night where people can gather. And what do people do when they gather? Well, they chat. And what do they chat about? politics. Well, of course, <laughs> now we have an issue for the sultan, because when large groups of people congregate until the early hours of the morning talking about politics, that's not likely to lead toward stability. So you had a very interesting kind of convergence of interests where you had certain religious scholars that were concerned about this new thing. You know, often religious scholars are concerned about things just because they're new. So you had some conservative scholars saying, I'm not sure about this whole coffee thing. Sounds like wine to me has a strong impact on the body. I think we should forbid it because wine is forbidden in the Quran and so coffee should be forbidden. And then you had others, including most of the Sufi community, who were arguing, wait a second, coffee helps you stay up at night and pray, so it must be a good thing, and we should approve it in religious terms. So you had this debate raging amongst the religious scholars, but then on the other hand, you had the sultan and his administration saying, coffee is bad because coffee houses are not controllable. And so they finally decided to say, no, no coffee. We're going to close the coffee houses. But by this time, the population was addicted and they were having <laughs> none of it. And uh, it would have been impossible to eradicate uh, coffee houses from the scene. And so we still have them. Interesting. So this was life in the Ottoman Empire at its sort of peak. It, would it be fair to suggest that the, the sort of Attempted conquest of Vienna was really the pinnacle of the Ottoman expansion period. In some ways, you can look at the expansion up against the walls of Vienna on the one side and then expansion through much of the Arab world and the conquest of Mecca and Medina. You know, you get to a point where certainly by the end of the 17th century, that's as big as the Ottoman Empire gets. So, yes, in territorial terms, it doesn't get bigger than that. And they sort of run up against Vienna a couple of times, fail to take it, partly for reasons of bad weather. I mean, so luck always enters into this. And partly for the reason that they're, of course, at the pretty much the end of their um, supply lines, right? So it's very difficult to get that far when you're coming from uh, 
Constantinople. It is sometimes easy to forget the distances involved. If you think in North Africa that the border of um, uh, expansion in North Africa was basically the modern Algerian Moroccan border, I mean. Even if you fly from Morocco to Istanbul today, that's a six-hour flight. You know that's an incredible amount of distance when you have to do it in a a galley, basically that's rowed physically or or in a sailboat. So absolutely, or if you're marching to Vienna, that's a very long way. And if it's going to take you two or three months to get there, dragging all of your art- artillery, very heavy, you cannons, know, um, yeah. with very large armies that all demand to be fed, you know, like twice a day, you know, that's a <laughs> lot nerve. of food. Um, it's uh, all of these animals that have to drag your heavy artillery, um, all the tents that you have to bring, all of these things, you know, the, the logistics of moving a pre-modern large standing army are absolutely enormous. And of course, you only have a certain amount of time that you can go. You can't do it in the wintertime. Um, and you have soldiers who need to get back and harvest uh, in the fall. So you're limited in how long your campaigns can be in terms of the time it takes to get there and the time it takes to come back. If you work that into the calendar, it means that you're going to be marching toward your objective through the rains of spring. And that's, in fact, what the, the armies would run into, right? Um, so weather played an enormous role and the limits of um, how far you could get people in a season, in a fighting season, um, and knowing that you're going to have very restive troops when it gets to the point where they know they should be back harvesting their crops. And if they don't, they're going to be very hungry the next winter. That all gets factored in. So That's kind of the limits of territorial expansion. So the problem is, though, is that when we think, okay, Second Siege of Vienna, the Ottomans don't take this city. From here on out, it's decline. And that's where we really get into a problematic situation because it's it's odd that we necessarily equate the end of expansion with decline. Right. What would you consider to be the golden age of the empire? You know, I I have a problem with golden ages. I think part of our issue when we think about um, history is that we want any polity to have its peak where everything is perfect and then its decline when everything goes off the rails. And I think that that's kind of a bad way to look at history. Certainly from a European perspective, we can look at the age of someone like Suleiman, whom they called the Magnificent, because he had systematized, for example, the tax system so that there was a lot of revenue coming in so he could buy lots of glittery stuff. The empire was big and it was expanding. It looked scary to Europeans. That's magnificence, right? As a social historian, though, what's interesting to me is not just the ex- the political expansion of a state, but how are the people living and how are different groups benefiting? And I think that when we usually look at the Ottoman Empire and its golden age, we have to realize that golden age means that some people are losing out, right? So you can talk about it as the people that are incorporated into the empire. They're losing their autonomy. You can look at it in terms of people who might otherwise have had more local autonomy, um, losing that under a system that's more centralized. So whether you're talking about Sufi brotherhoods, for example, or whether you're talking about local notables in a provincial city, maybe Aleppo or Damascus or Konya, um, who lose their autonomy because they're more closely tied to a central bureaucratic system. 
It looks great from the empire's perspective if they're able to control more and bring more revenue in through taxation. But if you're the one paying more taxes, you might have an issue with that. We can compare this to, you know, debates in American society today over those people who want a small federal government with less taxation and more local autonomy to people who want a stronger role for the federal government so that you have an equitable system across state lines that goes towards national objectives with everybody's money, right? So those are two perfectly legitimate perspectives. But depending on who's in the White House or who controls the machinery of state in Washington, D.C., there are going to be some people who are on the outside of the reigning philosophy who are going to be very dissatisfied. So even during the reign of Suleiman the Great, who's called the lawgiver, the lawmaker in Turkish uh, historiography, there were a lot of people who were discontented at that centralization or who thought that, hey, we're not doing things as well as your dad did or your grandfather did. You know, things are already starting to decline. So nothing is ever perfect when you're living through it. And from the outside, we see it as a golden age because of its political success. From the inside, there were always divergent voices. When you look at the uh, the span of Ottoman history, the first state was founded roughly around 1300, and it was dissolved in 1923, was the founding of the Republic. And Suleiman the Magnificent is somewhere around 1522 to, mm-hmm. to the latter part of the century. And a lot of times, uh, particularly in, in textbooks, you have Rise of the Ottomans, Conquest of Constantinople, Suleiman the Magnificent, 1918. Right. And um, somehow everything after Suleiman is the period of decline, which just to lend perspective, um, at the period this decline began, you know, the U.S. was the Jamestown settlement. And... Um, then all the way up through World War One. So what would be a more nuanced way of looking at this period? It's unquestionable that by 1918, the Ottomans were technologically and, and economically struggling to keep up with Europe. But simply saying that the Ottomans declined seems like a really simplistic explanation for what happened. Yeah, I think anybody who can decline for 400 years has to be doing something right. You know, if you can decline for longer than most empires, certainly longer than the American quote-unquote empire, um, you know, there's something else going on there. Um, It always has reminded me of kind of an Oreo with no filling, (laughs) right? Typically, our treatment of the Ottoman Empire both doesn't have any social or economic filling. We talk about the political events and not other things that were going on. Um, And it's chronologically missing its middle. Um, We get rise, golden age defined that way, and then decline and fall. Um, And somehow, you know, it must have been in decline the whole way after Suleiman. So um, clearly that's problematic because we have to understand what does decline mean and how can you decline for that long without going under. And I think part of the answer is, again, to think about decline, just as we thought about golden age, as having winners and losers. So if Suleiman's achievements as the lawgiver were to centralize things, to regularize um, and bureaucratize things, then decline for Ottomans in the central administration 
would be when that synthesis, when that centralization starts to fall apart. So when you have decentralizing tendencies, like the institution of tax farming ending up creating local notables who have a significant amount of autonomy and of a local power base, right? Who They might start their local militias or fund local militias, um, and they might have a tendency to break away or to send less of the revenue back to the central government, et cetera. So Anything that's going to empower locals at the expense of the center is going to be seen by the Ottomans as decline to the extent that it then impacts expansion and the empire is no longer expanding at the expense of its neighbors. It will be seen as by those neighbors as decline because they're less of a political threat. But what's going on inside the empire might be something very different so that if you're one of those local notables, If your town is thriving economically, in part because you are sending less of your revenue back to the central government in Constantinople, well, then for you, decentralization might be a very good thing. If you're a local Sufi order that has chafed under certain kinds of orthodox restrictions or rulings from the courts in Istanbul, then having more local autonomy might be a very good thing. So I think that Part of the story has been written only from the sense of expansion and lack of expansion and then contraction. Um, And part of it has been, you know, just the assumption that as Europe's economy expanded, the Ottomans must therefore have declined. And part of the story economically is that the Ottoman economy certainly had its ups and downs. It suffered under exactly the same kinds of pressures that European economies did. Um, Inflation, uh, enormous amount of inflation after the um, arrival of New World Silver, for example. Uh, The Ottomans struggled with that. The Ottomans struggled to pay a large standing infantry who had to be paid in cash instead of uh, having an in-kind system of military recruitment. And European states faced the same kind of thing. That in itself is not decline. What we can look at in terms of decline is the relative expansion of European economies over time, partly as a result of the resources of the New World colonization, relative to the Ottomans being able to more or less in most or in a fair number of spheres to be able to continue on and tread water, but not to expand at the rate that the Ottomans did. So what we're looking at is relative decline rather than necessarily absolute decline until we really get to uh, the late 18th and 19th century, where then you can begin to see the Ottomans start to lose significant amounts of territory and begin to, certainly by the middle of the 19th century, be under the economic power of or influence of European powers. How much of that would be attributable to the fact that European colonialism in, in Africa and Asia, as well as new advances in technology, basically meant that the Ottomans were being circumvented Um, The opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, for example, which was under British and French control, they were cut completely out of trade routes that they'd been sitting on top of for, you know, 600 years at that point. That's certainly part of it. And I think we we have to take one step backward, which is to look at the age of expansion, which in fact, in most textbooks is called the age of European expansion. And again, um, this is told as, you know, in some sense, the Ottomans are responsible for it because it was European irritation at having to pay higher prices because things came through Ottoman territories that made them want to look for another route to the 
Indies, for example, to get their spices at a cut rate price, right? However, what we forget is that the Ottomans, at the same time that the European nations were expanding across the Atlantic and around Africa, the Ottomans were also expanding. At the same time, they're expanding into the Middle East, into Arab territories, to Egypt, they take Mecca and Medina. And actually, there's a great new book by uh, Giancarlo Casale talking about the Ottoman Age of Exploration, where they move into the Indian Ocean and take on the Portuguese head-to-head, um, fighting over these places that are the sources of the spices and other goods. Um, they're fighting for these trade routes. So there's at least a century, century and a half after Columbus, where the Ottomans are kind of still in contention for this role. And it's only later that, in fact, they begin to lose ground because of technological changes, um, because of the expense of keeping up, you know, large fleets um, to be able to patrol the waters. And in fact, the Ottomans had always been comfortable working through middlemen, right? So you had the Venetians and the Genoese who would do a lot of this trading, and the Ottomans would eventually get a cut of it if the thing was traded in one of its cities, right? So the Ottomans had never tried to dominate the trade itself, Um, And so when the trade started going around them, they couldn't compete because they weren't themselves necessarily the actual traders. They had been middlemen or overseers of trade rather than the actual traders. And that meant that they were uh, at a significant loss when they lost control of those trade routes. And then, of course, the final death knell was their participation in World War I on on the losing side. Yeah, not such a great choice. (laughs) But but it it was reasonable at the time because the Ottomans, of course, the people who had been picking at them the most were the French and the British. So the idea that the Ottomans would ally themselves with the greatest threats to their sovereignty, that would have been extremely surprising, right? So the the French and the British by this point had, um, you know, begun taking away control over not just external trade, but internal trade within the Ottoman Empire. They were taxing goods that the Ottomans had had a monopoly on and taxed, like salt, for example. Well, now European powers were taxing salt or tobacco in the Ottoman Empire. So they were losing both revenue, which meant it was even harder for them to catch up to the Europeans uh, because they didn't have any tax base, less tax base coming in. Um, But they were also losing sovereignty internally. Without formal colonization, they were still losing control over their budget, over their economy, um, and therefore over their military. So the Ottomans realized the great threat that was coming at them from these European powers, and they were simply trying to find, you know, a way to balance that off. And if they could, you know, cut off the French and British at the knees, um, then that would give them a little bit more of a lease on life. In the end, it wasn't such a great decision. It wasn't such a great decision. And that's a story that we've picked up in a different podcast. So Barbara Petson, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, this has been another episode of 15 Minute History. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.